It's Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. The trial began this week for two Dartmouth College students who were arrested on campus last fall during a pro-Palestinian protest. NHPR's Olivia Richardson has been following this case, and she joins us now. Good morning. Hey, Rick. Good to see you, Olivia. First, can you tell us more about the charges against these students and, and their defense? Yeah, so two students, Kevin Engel and Rowan Wade, they were arrested on the night of October 28th on grounds of trespassing on school property. Uh, they were in what they call a peaceful protest to the school's response to the Israel-Hamas war. And so they were outside the school's college's administrative offices, and throughout the course of the day, the school asked them to relocate. They had like a tent on campus in particular. Um, ultimately, the two students were arrested by Hanover police, and the, statement, and the school said in a statement to the students and parents that they were concerned about potential violence. But the charges are strictly trespassing. And so far, the defense says that they weren't putting any anyone in danger. And protests continue on Dartmouth's campus, don't they? How are students getting involved and, and what are they asking for? Yeah, so there are eight students that have gone on the hunger strike to support Ingle and Wade. Um, they specifically wanted the school to drop charges against the students. Um, they were also asking the school to acknowledge Palestinian students on campus. Um, one student said that the administration, at least up until the protest um, or to the trial date, have not been part of the students' um, like peaceful vigils to um, for about for Palestine. And so they were asking the school to just be more supportive. Um, as of Monday, Rowan Wade and Ingle had their uh, first day of their trial. Six of the eight students announced that they were no longer hunger striking, but two students were continuing, and that is Rowan, who was on trial, and Paul Yang. Um, at the trial, there was a large gathering outside the Lebanon courthouse. Uh, people held signs and chanted for bail administration to drop charges against Wade and Ingle. Um, there's also been different student groups um, on campus, like the, start, the student worker collected at Dartmouth, that has put out statements showing their support of the hunger strikers. And Olivia, how is Dartmouth College responding to protests and debates on campus right now? What's their response been? What are they saying to people? Um, the college has put out a statement saying that they support the students' right to protest and that they have been providing medical treatment for the students that are hunger striking. But they've also stated that they're not going to ask the state to drop charges against the student. They're saying that it's essentially out of their jurisdiction, so they're letting the trial proceed. What do you think is next in this case? What, what are you keeping an eye on as, as the story is developing? Well, on Monday, the trial only got through like maybe three quarters of a way of one person's testimony. So there, the state still has three more to go and defense has two testimonies. Um, President Baylock has been summoned to testify. She wasn't there on Monday. So I think people are concerned that she's going to show up in the future. Um, Wade, uh, one of the people who are on trial, said that Baylock's opinion is important on this matter. So they're hoping she shows. Some other news uh, at Dartmouth College. Uh, the men's basketball team is set to vote in a union election next week. It could become the first unionized team in college sports. This has been a big story, Olivia. What are players hoping to, to gain through a potential union contract? Yeah, so right now they're hoping to form under the Service Employees International Union. Um, the men's basketball team is asking that members of the team, the players themselves, be included in the union, while managers and supervisors are not a part of it. Um, Upon voting for union, they could vote for wages or health services, but right now they're just looking to take that vote, which would be taking place on March 5th. It's not the first undergraduate union at Dartmouth either. Students um, working in campus dining launched a campaign two years ago, you might remember. 
What did they gain from collective bargaining? Uh, the student worker collective at Dartmouth has actually pushed for a $21 wage at the school, which they have won. They stated that during the pandemic really ex- showed how much exacerbated condi- uh, the pandemic exacerbated conditions um, just on having lower working wages and access to like mental health pay. So they managed to win mental health and sick pay, as well as an annual wage increase based on cost of attendance. Now, what's Dartmouth College saying about that? How are they responding to the team's union organizing? Um, Well, for the basketball players, I suppose um, they are saying that the students or the basketball players shouldn't form a union, I suppose. Um, They support that they don't support it, I should say. And that spokesman said that the student athletes aren't employees and the cost of running a team kind of outweighs the income that it puts in. Um, And the board is looking to reconsider whether or not the students should be considered employees. Yeah. And this is interesting. Obviously, we'll have uh, wider implications around school systems in the country. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you what's next here. Is there any upcoming reporting that you'd like to preview or highlight for listeners as as they're watching for for your reporting, Livia? (laughs) <laughs> Great question on the spot, Rick. Um, I guess stay tuned to like all what's happening on Dartmouth. Um, and yeah. I, yeah. Well, yeah, Olivia, you always find something interesting. So <laughs> I, would, I would encourage people to follow you and, and uh, check it out on NHPR.org. Olivia, thank you. NHPR's Olivia Richardson. Uh, you can find more of her work again at NHPR.org. New Hampshire's northern counties sustained damage during a flooding event in December, and now they're eligible for federal assistance. Joining me now with more is NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Mara, what kind of damage did did, uh, these communities see in December, and, and how could this funding help? Yeah, so, um, you know, the storm that started December 17th brought a lot of rain, um, and that fell on top of snow, which was melting. And then all of that ran on top of ground that was partially frozen and soil that was already saturated. So that was kind of a recipe for flooding. River levels rose super high, and communities, especially in the northern part of the state, were inundated with water. Governor Sununu outlined some of the impacts in a letter that he wrote to President Biden asking him to make the major disaster declaration Um, And he said, you know, among other things, more than a thousand people were cut off from critical services, roads were washed out, culverts were damaged, and a significant number of people were displaced by the flooding, you know, at least 35 people, according to state officials. So now after getting the major disaster declaration, three counties, Coas, Grafton, and Carroll, can get two kinds of FEMA assistance. One is called public assistance, which can help with things like restoring public roads and other infrastructure and recovering the cost of debris removal and emergency services. And the other kind of help is called hazard mitigation, which could help communities build back in ways that could be you know, more resilient to disasters in the future. The state wasn't able to ask for individual assistance, so people who you know, maybe lost a home or um, part of a home can't get help through the FEMA process, to my knowledge. Um, but those other two kinds of assistance are available through this major disaster declaration. But Omar, I want to ask you about that FEMA assistance and how it works exactly. You know, in, the, in that request for federal assistance, the governor said that the costs were much higher than two and a half million dollars. But how much how does FEMA assistance actually work? Is that money distributed to municipalities directly? Is it a reimbursement situation? How does that happen? Yeah, it can be confusing. So state officials, I guess, just to say, first of all, are scheduling briefings with local leaders to explain the process. Um, But from previous experience, it seems to be something that can take a long time. You know, there's still disasters that New Hampshire is working on with FEMA from 2017. 
And communities have to pay for repairs and other expenses up front and then wait to get reimbursed by FEMA, which is a big burden for smaller places that experience massive damage, you know, sometimes many millions of dollars more than their annual budget. So, for example, in Ackworth, um, you know, which experienced major flooding last summer, residents are going to vote this month on whether the town can raise up to a million dollars in bonds to repair roads that were damaged. They're going through the FEMA process related to a major disaster declaration for that storm, you know, but still have to find the money up front to pay for road repairs and and things like that. Right. So they have to come up with those bonds and that money first. And as you said, it could take years for the town to see that reimbursement. Yeah. So climate scientists predict that these flooding events will only become more common in New Hampshire as well as other areas in New England. How will these towns be able to keep up with repair costs, Mara, especially since FEMA just doesn't provide assistance up front? Yeah, I mean, it's something that seems like it'll be a struggle. Um, One thing that could help is hazard mitigation. So, you know, building roads and bridges and other infrastructure in ways that can withstand, you know, in the future more intense rainstorms and flooding going forward. Um, And state lawmakers are thinking about this, too. There's already a program that allows towns to apply for loans from the state up to the amount that FEMA has said they'll reimburse, which could help with upfront repairs. Um, And legislation that was passed in the House of Representatives last week would create an emergency fund run by the state that towns could apply for up to $100,000 a year from. So I'll be following that effort to see where it goes and sort of how state lawmakers are addressing this, um, this potential issue. All right. Thank you, Mara. Let's talk about some of the research going on at New Hampshire universities on climate change while we have you here. A new study from Dartmouth shows how climate change might affect and be affected by carbon stored in permafrost. So, Mara, how did this research come about? Yeah, great question. So I was talking to the lead researcher on this project, um, Joan Marie Del Vecchio, and she said she got the idea for the study when she was in western Alaska in the summer of 2019. She looked out over a landscape in front of her and thought to herself, wow, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of rivers out here. So she started looking into this hypothesis that in places that have a lot of permafrost, the land is less likely to get carved up by rivers than in places with warmer climates. And they found that, yeah, you know, basically if a place is warmer, it has more channels for water. So what could this mean as the planet warms and and, and permafrost is eroding? Well, Del Vecchio says, you know, as the Arctic gets warmer, it could be more susceptible to erosion and those water channels carving up a landscape. And as the landscape gets carved up, you know, that could expose carbon that's stored in the soil. And as it gets churned up by erosion and water, microbes can eat that carbon and then sort of burp out methane and carbon dioxide. That's and an, that, it's an image. It is totally an image, <laughs> like tiny little microbes burping um, climate warming emissions. And that can create a feedback loop. So, you know, where more soil thaws, more carbon's released and so on. More thaw, more carbon, more thaw. Yeah, more you carbon. get into that, that's, that cycle that just spirals up. Yeah. So folks at the University of New Hampshire are also studying permafrost in the Arctic. I'm wondering what questions do, do those researchers hope to answer with that research? Yeah, they are. So, yeah, over the summer, I got to see some of that permafrost. Um, They have soil there that's around four and a half million years old, which, like, cool to be in a room with something that old. Um, But the scientists I talked to about the permafrost there are working on understanding more about those microbes that we were talking about that burp out the climate warming emissions and how those microbial communities change when the permafrost thaws. So I'm I'm guessing that climate science is is really... Parts of the future of climate science really it has a lot to do with permafrost, doesn't it? Because we're going to see this eroding as time goes on. Yeah, it seems to be like a definitely an area of research for these um, scientists. One thing Del Vecchio is saying is, you know, we don't know very much about the Arctic and about permafrost. And so this is like a it's a really 
important time to be doing this kinds of kind of research because it's a, a storing a lot of the carbon that could influence um, global carbon budgets and the way that we see emissions and and warming playing out going forward. So it could also influence policy. You know how the U.S. is thinking about um, limiting emissions and and what that looks like for permafrost that's storing a lot of carbon in the Arctic. And researchers right here from New Hampshire working on that. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you for that. Any upcoming reporting you like to preview quickly for us, uh, Maura? Yeah, so um, I'm working on actually, you know, based on the sort of female uh, stuff we were talking about earlier, a feature on the after effects of that December flooding and how it's, um, you know, affected people in North Country communities. I visited a school and a church um, earlier this week that experienced major flooding and um, a woman who whose home was really affected by it. So um, just sort of like how this flooding is still so present in the lives of many people, even, you know, months after it happened. Yeah, the reverberations go on for a long time. Yeah. NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian. Thank you. Thank you. You can find more of Mara's work and all the stories we talked about again this morning at nhpr.org. I'm Rick Hanley. This is NHPR.